I am deeply honored to be with you guys this morning. Uh, there are a few people in the world that I respect more than your pastor, and so uh, it's a, a, a privilege and an honor uh, to get to open the word with you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I would invite you to open with me to the book of Psalms, and I'm going to start with a pretty academic statement about how I think the Psalms were intended to function in the Christian life, and then I'm going to back up and try to uh, spell out what I mean by way of an illustration. So there's a, an Old Testament scholar named Gordon Winham who wrote that the Psalms are an anthology to be memorized for the enculturation of the youth. I'm going to say that phrase again. He says the Psalms are an anthology to be memorized for the enculturation of the youth. Here's what he means. Uh, I'm sure that I mean, I'm sorry to mention this show. I've actually never seen an episode of this show in my life, but I've, I've heard about it. Uh, people in our culture talk about it. Maybe you've heard of it. Have you heard of the show Sex in the City that was on HBO? Some of you have. Maybe some of you are too young to know about this show. Uh, there's an article that a, that a female journalist wrote entitled, How Sex and the City Ruined My Life. And what she details in the article is the way that the the main character of the show, Sarah Jessica Parker is the actress's name, Carrie Bradshaw is her name in the, in the, in the show, um, she modeled her life after Carrie Bradshaw. So what Carrie did is what this woman did. She moved to New York City. She got a job writing a gossip column, basically, for a newspaper. And what Carrie thought the good life was, this girl pursued as the good life. So her understanding of what glamour looked like, of what beauty was, of what the good life that was to be pursued, all of that was derived from this show. And maybe you know people, I know people I feel like, who have gotten their understanding of life, their, their understanding of what they should do in the world from something like the t television or uh, Hollywood or, or whatever the case may be. And, and that phrase that I started with, the Psalms are an anthology to be memorized for the enculturation of the youth, that phrase is saying the Psalter was intended to do for people what sex and the city did for this poor lady writing that, that column. And, and you know, the, the, the difference is so unspeakably vast. This, this woman is writing the column She's 38 years old. You can Google the phrase, how sex in the city ruined my life. It'll come right up. And, and she's 38 years old, and she's talking about how she regrets the dating lifestyle that she pursued. She regrets the way that she wasted the, 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 essentially the childbearing years of her life, her 20s and 30s. And, and she comes to the end of the article, and it's so tragic. She says the words, she writes the words, I could have gotten married. I could have built a family. And instead, she went from man to man, thinking that this was glamorous. So what I want to do this morning is look with you at the Psalter in the hope that you will catch a taste for this, in the hope that the Psalter might become the heartbeat of your life, in the hope that when, when you think about who you are and how you should pray and how you should walk with God, I hope that you, it would be awesome if somebody in this room decided, you know what, I'm going to memorize the Psalter and just started out Psalm 1 and, and worked straight through from beginning. That would be 
that would be that would be life transforming. The words of the Psalter would revolutionize everything about your life. But even if you don't do that, if you just deeply familiarize yourself with the Psalter by reading it over and over and over again, what's going to happen is the storyline that is assumed in the Psalter is going to become your storyline. And the the, the, the attitudes about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and what happens to the good guys and how they triumph and who saves them, that's going to inform your thinking about life. And then the statements about God are going to fill in for you who God is. And, and so there will be these, these conclusions that you come to about what's right and what's wrong. And there will be these conclusions you come to about what you should value and what you should repudiate, what you should encourage and what you should discourage. And then with all of this, you will also experience in the Psalter the response of praise, the response of praise that should flow from understanding who God is and what he's done for us. And then as you're experiencing in this room, when you get around a group of people who think that this is what is normal, It's normal to believe the scriptures. It's normal to suffer for righteousness. It's normal to identify as right and wrong what the Bible says is right and wrong. Then you'll you'll be experiencing a culture that has been transformed by the Bible. And I'm convinced the only thing strong enough to resist this intrusive culture in which we live, this culture that we live in has more access to us than any culture in the history of the world. We all have these little devices by which they, they pump their message into us or they figure out the, al- the algorithm whereby they want to feed to us the message that they want us to see over and over and over again. And these tech giants, they're trying to disciple you. They're trying to disciple you in a worldly mindset that would make you pursue a life that will lead to your ruination. And, and the only thing strong enough to resist that is the experience of a local church that has a culture that's been transformed by the scriptures, and then with that, your own experience of God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, renewing your mind so that you believe the Bible, and then you return to the Bible again and again to have your mind renewed so that you can be transformed into into the image of Christ. So we're going to do a very fast run through the Psalter, and I hope that what's going to happen is is you're going to experience this sense of oh my goodness, I never knew that the Psalms were so awesome. And then I hope you're going to want to come back to the Psalms again and again and again. So the first thing I want to say is that the best, thing to, the best way to experience the Psalter is as a book in sequence. As a book in sequence. In other words, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to think of the Psalms not merely as randomized individual poems that are disconnected from one another, but rather as purposefully, strategically arranged psalms so that the message of one psalm is connected to the next and the next and so forth from the beginning to the end. It's almost like a collage. You could think of a a display of photographs. And if I were to do a collage of my life, I might start with, with this photo that I have actually in, in a copy of the Hebrew Bible, and it's my dad's, uh, my dad is here this morning, uh, his, his uh, contact photo, it's a photo of him in his graduation gown from college holding me as a baby. I'd probably start there, 
and then I might move to something like my first day of school, and then, you know, just fast-forwarding, maybe like high school graduation, and then my wedding day, and then the day that I graduated with my PhD, and then on, on through my life. And as you looked at these photos, you would, you would think to yourself, oh, I see what he's doing. He's telling us the story of his life in the photographs. And then if I died, and somebody who understood me, somebody who knew me came along, they might say something like, you know, we can fill out the picture here. So we can add in a picture of his parents' wedding day and maybe even a picture of his grandparents. And we can add in a picture of those two towers smoking on 9-11 because that was a really significant incident in his life. And they could, they, could fill, they could add in a picture of me in my casket and then maybe a picture of the gravestone. And, and they could fill out the story. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I think that this is essentially what David has done. David has built like a collage, a photo collage of his life and then other people who understood what David was doing came in later and they added in snapshots, other psalms, to fill out the picture. The whole thing starts and is introduced by Psalms 1 and 2. And because of the nature of our time, uh, I just want to make a couple of quick observations about how Psalms 1 and 2 work together. Notice the first line of, of Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Now look at the last line of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I think that those two statements are intended to be understood together. And that the blessed man in the Psalter, in Psalm 1, this blessed man, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And, and I think essentially what's being described is the Deuteronomy 17 righteous king of Israel. The king of Israel who's expected, who's promised to the line of David, who rises up and he writes out in his own hand a copy of the law so that when Satan comes and tempts him, he says things like, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, every time Satan tempted Jesus, he answered with the book of Deuteronomy. And, and I think one of the things the gospel authors are telling us is that Jesus is the Deuteronomy 17 king who has internalized the law and he's now living out the, the Torah. And I would submit to you that the blessed man in Psalm 1 is the expected future king. And then there's this group of people who align with him. And then there's this group of people opposed to him. Look at Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed, that, that could be rendered his Messiah. So the, the kings of the earth are gathered together against God and against God's anointed king, the Messiah. In David's day, this is David himself, when Jesus comes, he's the Messiah. So David is anticipating the Messiah. And then the Lord makes this promise there in Psalm 2. Uh, the, 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 the anointed king answers in 2.7. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is recalling 2 Samuel 7, 14, uh, where the, the Lord promised through the prophet Nathan to David, he will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. And now God is saying to the anointed king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So the future king of Israel is going to reign over all the earth. And then immediately what starts happening is this anointed king 
in, like in Psalm 3, he starts getting persecuted. Look at the superscription of Psalm 3, that line next to the big three uh, that designates the third psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So you've got this dynamic where you have this blessed man who's righteous, and then you have these enemies of his, and then you have this group of people that are taking refuge in the Lord's anointed king. And then the world is raging against them, against the Lord and his anointed king and the people who belong to the king. So you've got two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked, or we might say the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And you've got two different ways. You've got the way of walking in the scriptures and the way of walking in the counsel of the wicked. And there is, there is no, no peace between them, nothing but enmity between them. And watch what David does here in Psalm 3. Before I read that, before I continue, let me just draw your attention to back in 2.6 where uh, um, the Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Okay, so the Lord is saying, I know the nations are raging, 2, 1 through 3. I know they're taking their stand against me, but this is what I've done. I'm going to set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now look at chapter 3, when Absalom, you remember what Absalom did in 2 Samuel 15, he, he made himself look really impressive in the eyes of the world, he gathered chariots, he was a really good-looking guy, and he started lying to the people of Israel. The people of Israel would come into the city with their complaints, and this man Absalom told lies about his own father. And then eventually, he tried to murder his own father, David. And he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to steal the very kingdom of God that God had given to his father. It's astonishing evil from Absalom. But, you know, he would say, oh, I wish there was somebody in the city that would hear your complaints. Too bad there's nobody like me in charge. If I was in charge, I would take care of you. And he, he, he subverted his father, and he, won, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel, and David eventually had to flee the city. And look at what he says here in Psalm 3.3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And it looks really bad for David. Absalom had the, he had the army. He had the populace. Everybody was for Absalom. Absalom had David's best counselor, this guy named Ahithophel, who wanted David dead. And David flees the city weeping. And, and he's got just this small band of nobodies going out into the wilderness with him. And his response is, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And, and David is essentially asserting, if God is for me, who can be against me? And then he continues that the Lord is his glory and the lifter of his head. And then verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And my point here is to draw your attention to the reference to the Lord's holy hill in 2.6, and then the reference to the ho his holy hill in 3.4. And I want to suggest to you that in Psalm 3, David is praying on the basis of and in response to the promises of Psalm 2. And this is how we want to pray. We want to hear the promises of God, and then we want to pray the languages of those promises. So David is confident that God is going to lift his head, that Absalom is not going to kill him because of the promises that have been made. Well, there's a lot more that we could, we could say. 
But, but at this point, I just want to fast forward through book one of the Psalms. Maybe as you've read the Psalms, you've noticed that it's, it, the book is divided into these five books. And book one is Psalms 1 through 41. And all, all of these Psalms, almost all of these Psalms, all but four of them, 37 of the first 41 Psalms are Psalms of David. And the only ones that are not Psalms of David are, uh, they, they don't have any superscription. They're not ascribed to anybody. So Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 10, and Psalm 33, those don't have any superscription. And, and look, before we get to the, the very end in Psalm 41, look at Psalm 40. Maybe you know this one because you two made a song out of it. I think their song was called 40. And, and, and it's, a, it's a, a psalm of David, and he says in verses 1 and 2, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So all through this book, David has been persecuted, he's been opposed, and now at almost the very end, he's saying, he heard my cry, and then he says in verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. And what's interesting about this, one of the things that's interesting about this is that as far as we know from the narratives of the Old Testament, David was never in a pit. But can you think of somebody that was in a pit who lived prior to David? Joseph, that's exactly right. And, and I want to I suggest to you that David is describing himself in terms that are reminiscent of Joseph. And when you start thinking about this, the, what's happened to David is exactly what happened to Joseph. Joseph got these dreams that, that the, the sheaves that represented his brothers and his father and mother were bowing down to him, and the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. That means Joseph's going to be the leader among the people of Israel. Well, what happened to David? David gets anointed by the prophet Samuel. And then what happened to Joseph after he gets the dreams? His brothers want to kill him. And then they sell him into slavery. And then he's taken down to Egypt and eventually he's thrown into the pit. What happened to David after he got anointed? Saul starts trying to kill him. And he's chasing him around through the wilderness. And then the same thing that happens to Joseph is what happens to, to, to David. Joseph eventually gets exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He's lord over his brothers. They come and bow down to him. And in, one, in, in, a, in a sense, Joseph blesses the whole world, because in, at one point in Genesis, it says the whole earth came to buy grain from Joseph. So Joseph's wise stewardship and provision saved the earth, saved the world from starvation. Well, similarly, David is eventually exalted to be king, and everyone is blessed under his leadership. I think that David saw this similarity between himself and Joseph, and I think he thought something like this. If this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to Joseph, and oh, by the way, this is also kind of what happened to Moses. Uh, you remember Moses, uh, his parents saw that he was a beautiful child, and then he, then he gets exalted in Pharaoh's house, and then he comes out trying to deliver the people of Israel, and they reject him. They say, who made you ruler and judge over us? And then he goes away, and eventually the Lord brings him back, and sure enough, he leads the people out of Egypt. So you've got this pattern in Joseph, and then in Moses, and then David sees it in his own life, and I think he's thinking... This is going to be fulfilled in the life of the one that God has promised to raise up from my line, the seed of David that God has promised to establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And then uh, look, at, look at the end of Psalm 41. We get to the end of book one with these patterns in place, patterns of suffering that precede glory. And at the end of, of book one, you meet with this doxology. Look at verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. At the end of book two, which is uh, Psalm 72, 
at, at Psalm 72, 18, and 19, you don't, you don't have to turn there, but you're going to find another doxology with those four elements. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. At the end of book three, which is Psalm 89, the last words of Psalm 89 are going to have a doxology that says the same thing. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And then at the end of book four, Psalm 106, again, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. Those four statements mark all four of these doxologies. Also, at the, at the sort of seam between book one and book two, you have this, this surprising, almost shocking change in authorship. Look at the superscription of, of book two. It reads, to the choir mask, master, a mosquito of the sons of Korah. And we're like, hey, what, what happened to David? I had all these psalms of David, 37 of the first 41, and now I've got these guys. Who are these sons of Korah? Well, you go back to, to 1 Chronicles, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, you learn that the sons of Korah are, are among the Levites whom David put in charge of the worship of the Lord at the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. And what it does is it, it suggests that at this point, David has been enthroned as king in Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5, king over Israel and Judah. 2 Samuel 6, he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And now here are these sons of Korah who are going to sing these worship songs, um, celebrating the reign of David. I would love to take some time to, to look at that, but, but I want to suggest that there's a broad correspondence between what happens in these psalms and the promises that David receives in 2 Samuel 7. So just to review, you know, he's established as king in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, and then he brings the ark into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. He gets all the great promises in 2 Samuel 7. And then in chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Samuel, David starts conquering in every direction. And that's kind of what happens here in particularly like Psalms 47, 48, 49, 50. And then 2 Samuel 11, you remember what happened? That's where David went into Bathsheba. That's where he sinned. And that's what we meet with in Psalm 51. And then after David's sin with Bathsheba, the, really the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is sad. God tells David in 2 Samuel 12 that he's going to raise up evil against him out of his own house. And he says, the sword will never depart from your house. And, and evil and opposition start coming at David, starting in Psalm 52. And then, uh, then we meet with Psalm 53, which, you know, if you're a student of the Psalter, you may have noticed that Psalm 14 is a lot like Psalm 53. In fact, they're almost exactly the same psalms. It starts out in 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. I think that we should see this, this repetition not as some kind of accident, but as the kind of repetition that you meet with in, in a musical, like any of you listen to Hamilton, American, an American musical? Some of you have heard this. What about Les Mis? Anybody listen to Les Mis? You know, when, when, you, when you hear the same melody or the same rhythm or the same lines in a musical, you don't think to yourself, oh, they didn't edit it carefully enough. Or, oh, they, they, didn't, you know, they didn't realize that they were repeating themselves. No, you know they're doing this on purpose. It's communicating the message of the whole, the whole production. Well, so also... You know, we started out in Psalm 3 with David being opposed by Absalom, and then eventually you get to Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I think that's David's assessment of what his son is doing. The fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. And because he's a fool, and because he doesn't believe in God, he thinks he's going to be able to triumph against me and against the Lord. The same with Saul's opposition. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We could look at the worldly culture around us, and we could righteously, biblically respond. The fools say in their heart, there is no God. They think they're going to be able to oppose the church. They think they're going to be able to stop the gospel message. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. They're fools, and they don't believe in God. Nobody is going to overcome God. Nobody is going to triumph over the Lord. Well, things gradually start to get better, and then if you get over to Psalm 72 as you move through, there's this psalm that is of Solomon. And, um, you know, you, you, you might initially think, oh, maybe Solomon wrote this psalm. He could have, but because of the content of Psalm 72, I think it's likely that David is writing this one about Solomon. So look at what he says in verse, verses 1 and 2. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. David is essentially praying that the king that God raises up from his line would fulfill everything that God has promised. It's a magnificent psalm. I would love to work through the whole thing with you. Uh, Let me draw your attention to verse 8, where he prays, May he, the future king from David's line, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the king of Israel reign over the whole world. And then look at, look at verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Who in the Bible got to eat dust for their food? The serpent, that's exactly right. So this communicates that the enemies of David are the seed of the serpent. And they're going to meet with the same end as their father, the devil. I wonder if you've ever thought about why it was that when the Pharisees came out to John the Baptist, he he addressed them as, you brood of vipers. I mean, he's telling them, you guys are seed of the serpent. And and Jesus speaks to his opponents in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. They're just speaking in biblical terms about those who oppose God and his anointed king. Well, look down at verse 20 of Psalm 72. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And this is right after the doxology in verses 18 and 19 that has blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And then, it, and then the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's a, that's a really remarkable statement for a number of reasons. Here are a couple of reasons that make that statement so remarkable. You're familiar with superscriptions like the one at Psalm 3 of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And you, you might... If you, don't, if you don't tabulate them, if you don't go through and note down where they are and then look at their distribution, you might think, oh, you have that kind of thing all over the Psalter. Actually, there are only 13 of those in the Psalms. Only 13 places in the Psalms where you have these historical superscriptions. And 12 of them are in books 1 and 2, Psalms 1 through 72. 12 of the 13 historical superscriptions are in books 1 and 2, And then you add that to the the Davidic superscriptions. So uh, book one, 37 of the 41 Psalms are attributed to David. Book two, 18 of the 31 are attributed to David. So still a lot of David. Book three, Psalm 73 through 89, you know how many Psalms of David are there? One. One. Psalm 86. It's like David is gone. He's off the scene. Book four, Psalms 90 through 106, you know how many Psalms of David are there? Two. 
Psalms 101 and 103, only two. And then book five, there's this revival of Psalms of David that we'll talk about in just a moment. So I want to suggest to you that the 12 of the 13 historical superscriptions, the the drop-off in Davidic Psalms in books three and four, and and then this note in 7220, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. All this joins together to indicate that we've dealt with in book one, David's suffering prior to his becoming king, and then David's reign in book two, Psalms 42 through 72. This is when David was reigning over Israel, so that now, when we move into book three, we're moving into the kings that descend from David down to the exile of Israel from the land. Now, let me throw in a word of application for you here. Um, how, why does this matter to us? Why does it matter to us that David suffered before he became king? Well, I want to suggest to you that that's, that's going to be your story. You, you can expect that the suffering is going to come before the glorification. That's the way life goes. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his glory? So I think that the way this works in the Psalter is the way it works in 1 Peter chapter 2. You remember what Peter says to his people in 1 Peter 2? He says, um, he says you want to suffer for doing what is good. It doesn't do any good if you suffer for doing evil. So you know, if you suffer for doing evil, you're just getting what you deserved. But if you do good and you suffer for it, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God because that's what Jesus did. Jesus did good and he suffered for it. And then Peter leaves, he uses this phrase, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. We should expect difficulty, hardship, suffering, affliction, and then we should believe that all of that will be not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed, Romans 8, 18. We believe that we're going to suffer all through this life, and then by grace through faith, if we've been justified by faith, if we've suffered a death like his, we're going to get a resurrection like his, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 3. So coming back now to the Psalter, book 3, um, as you move through Psalm 73 through 89, you hit a couple of psalms in particular that, that read as though the temple is being attacked. Look at Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your, into your inheritance. They've come into the land. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. So they've, they've attacked the temple. They've killed the people. And back in 1 Kings 14.25 and 2 Chronicles 12, you read about this Shishak king of Egypt who did this very thing. He made an incursion into the Holy Land. He defeated the people, and he plundered the king's house and the temple, and then he left, but he didn't yet destroy the temple. By the time you get over to Psalm 89, it sounds like the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down, the temple has been destroyed, and there's no more a king of the line of David in Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 89, verse 38. And I'll just read a few verses here. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, the Davidic covenant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. And then the psalmist shows that he believes that this is not forever. He shows that even though Jerusalem has been destroyed and the king from David's line has been removed from the throne, God is going to keep his promises. 
God is going to establish his kingdom. And he shows it by asking the question that you find in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? And then uh, I think that the, pl- the placement of, of Psalm 90 at the beginning of, of book 4 is just brilliant. And I, I want to briefly uh, tell you why. So, you know, once again, we hit that doxology at the end of book 3. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Once again, at the beginning of book four, you have a change in ascription of authorship, which I didn't mention this, but you also have that at the start of book three, the doxology, and then Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. So a new speaker at the beginning of each of the books. Well, why would we meet with Moses here? Twice in the wilderness, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and start over with you. Exodus 32, golden calf. Numbers 14, when they, the spies bring back the bad report. On both occasions, the Lord says, Moses, I'm wiping them out, and I'm starting over with you. And, and Moses, on both occasions, says, don't do that, Lord. Consider your reputation among the nations. Think about what the Egyptians will say if you do that. And then in Exodus 32, verses 12 through 14, Moses calls on the Lord to turn from his burning anger and relent of the evil that he had spoken to do to Israel. Look at what he prays. In Psalm 90, verse 13, return, O Lord, which is the same Hebrew verb rendered turn in Exodus 32, 12. How long? Have pity. And that's the same word rendered relent in Exodus 32, 12 through 14. So essentially turn, relent, have pity on your servants. So I think that in the same way that Moses interceded with the Lord in the wilderness to save the people of Israel... He's now interceding with the Lord in the Psalms to save the Davidic covenant, as it were. And then you have the same kind of thing at the end of book 4. Look over at Psalm 106. Psalm 106, 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So... So here's what I'm I'm suggesting to you in terms of the storyline of the Psalter. The Lord promises that he's going to make David king. David begins to suffer. Eventually, David becomes king. He sins grievously, but he begins to recover. And then his, now we're to book three, then his sons take over, and they eventually get the people exiled from the land because they're not the, the promised one, and they're not righteous like they need to be. So they get exiled from the land. And now, in exile... They're, they're, ter- they're looking back to Moses, they're looking back to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they're seeking the Lord. This is exactly what Moses said they would do. If you go, if you go read Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31, or Deuteronomy 28 through 32, or Leviticus 26, Moses is basically going to say to the people of Israel, you're going to go into the land, you're going to break the covenant, you're going to be exiled, but then you'll seek the Lord from exile, and he's going to restore you. And uh, in in those statements, particularly Deuteronomy 4, the Lord warns, I'm going to scatter you among the nations, but then I will gather you from all the places to which I've scattered you. Now look at the end of Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 47. Um, The psalmist leads the people in prayer, and he says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us. From among the nations. So it's like in 89, the, the city has been destroyed, the king has been exiled, the people have been exiled, and now in 106, they're doing exactly what Moses said they would do. They're, they're crying out for salvation, they're asking the Lord to gather them in. 
Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Now, what I'm about to show you from the beginning of 106 and the start of 107, this is often referred to as a link word connection from one psalm to another. And if you read the psalms closely and carefully in a more literal translation, you'll see a lot of this for yourself. Look at 107, and I'm just going to start reading in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. 106.47, that we may give thanks. 107.1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look back at 106.45, at the end, he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Now look down at 107.2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let me just make a comment about this word redeemed. In the Old Testament, the Lord redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, and then the prophets, Moses included, start telling them, the Lord is going to save us in the future. He's going to redeem us in the future in the way he redeemed us in the past. So this word redeemed is an exodus, new exodus word. Let, it's, it's as though the new exodus redemption has, has begun, 107.2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and then look at verse 3, and gathered in from the lands, as though it's already happened. 106.47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. 107.3, gathered in from the lands, as though he's already done it. So here's what I want to suggest to you. I think that book 5 of the Psalter, Psalms 107 through 150, is, is cast into the future as though the future salvation has already happened. It's as though David and the psalmists reflected, and they, and they asked themselves the question, what will the people pray, and how will they praise the Lord when God fulfills everything that he has promised? And, and then they write these psalms, David and the others. So I'm going to skip over 108. There's a lot I could say about that. It's, it's really an, an amazing psalm. I'm going to skip over it, though, to go to 109, which is an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer is a prayer against the enemies of God and his Messiah and his people. And Psalm 109 is a scorcher. And if you read people like C.S. Lewis, you won't be helped. I mean, I love C.S. Lewis. He helped me profoundly. I love the book Mere Christianity. I would commend it to you. But C.S. Lewis has terrible things to say about Psalm 109. He thinks it's, he thinks it's like sub-Christian and we shouldn't talk this way. I think we should talk this way. Um, I think that you should pray that the enemies of God would have their teeth broken and crushed. And, and you should bear in mind as you pray this way that this is the way the Lord brings people to salvation. The Lord brings people to salvation through judgment. He imposes upon them his righteousness and they realize, oh, if I don't repent, he's going to send me to hell forever and he has the power to destroy me. And then they, they repent and, and they turn. This is what an imprecatory prayer is asking for, but it's also including if they don't repent, don't let them get away with it. If they don't repent, don't let their evil plans prosper and succeed. And then listen to what is prayed here in Psalm 109. I, I hope this will sound familiar to you. It, it, it starts with a group of people, um, you know, Verse 2, for the wicked and deceitful mouths, those, that's a bunch of people. And then it narrows down to one guy in particular in verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him, 
Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. And then maybe you've heard these words before in verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. Where, where, where do we read those words, else, those words elsewhere in the Bible? Later in the Bible. Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, about whom are those, those words quoted? Judas. That's exactly right. Here's what I think happened. I think that David thought about his own life. And, and it, you know, you got the pattern of Joseph, the pattern of Moses, the pattern of David, and David is expecting this is going to be repeated and fulfilled in the life of the one promised to me. And then he thinks about Joseph, who was betrayed by his own brothers. And he thinks about Moses, who at one point, Aaron and Miriam turned against Moses and spoke against him. And then David looks at his life, and his right-hand man, this counselor that he had named Ahithophel, turned against him and sided with Absalom. And I think David is expecting... Somebody close to the future Messiah is going to betray him. And I'm going to write a prayer that he's going to use against that traitor. I mean, look at Acts chapter 1. And, and you know, you, you be a Berean, you test these things, you see if they're so. Right after that, right after that prayer of imprecation, is Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, celebrating the future triumph of the king from David's line. It's, it's a magnificent psalm. I'd love to work through it, but I, I want to keep, keep, keep with this sort of storyline that we're developing through the Psalter. After that, after 110, we have Psalms 111 through 117, which are the Hallel Psalms. These are the psalms that either begin or end, or in some cases begin and end, with praise the Lord in English. But in Hebrew, it's hallelujah. That's what they're saying. Hallelujah. And Hallel means praise. So you've got the conquest of the future king in Psalm 110, and then the Hallels that ring out in response, the praises that ring in response in 111 through 117, and then the king comes to the city in 118. I love Psalm 118. Before I read, I'm gonna, I'm, this is a great, Psalm 118, I'm told, was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. I'm going to skip down to verse 19. And before I read this verse, I'm going to remind you of Psalm 24. You know, Psalm 24, it's a lot like Psalm 15, where this question is asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You remember the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol. And, and, and then as Psalm 24 continues, this, this, this call rings out because he's coming. He's coming, and, and so they say, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And it's like, I mean, it's like the God-man has come. It's like King Jesus has come, and the cry is ringing out for the doors to be thrown open. And now look at Psalm 118, verse 19. This figure, it's like he arrives at the gates of the city of Jerusalem, and he cries out, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That, that verse is quoted all over the New Testament. I, it's quoted in 1 Peter and Luke and Matthew and Mark. Joseph was rejected. 
became the cornerstone. Moses was rejected, became the cornerstone. David was rejected, became the cornerstone. That whole pattern is fulfilled in Jesus, who was rejected and then became the cornerstone. And then you remember what Jesus said at one point in the triumphal entry. The, the, the children are crying out, acclaiming him, and they say, tell them to be quiet. And he says, if, if they were to be silent, the stones would cry out. And then he says, you will not see me again until you say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the Hosanna is in verse 25. Hosanna means save us. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's like the people are thronging the temple as the, as the king approaches the temple through the eastern gates. And they say there in verse 26, we bless you from the house of the Lord. So it's like the righteous king has conquered his enemies and now he's entering the city in triumph. And, and then what comes next? Psalm 119, which celebrates the law of Moses. And it's like the righteous king, the blessed man, who lives out the Torah himself, is now establishing God's righteousness as the rule of life for God's people. And Psalm 119 just celebrates the Bible. It's a magnificent psalm. And then you remember Isaiah chapter 2, which says, uh, The mountain of the hill of the Lord shall be exalted and established as the highest of the mountains, and the peoples will come streaming to Zion, saying, Come, let us go up to Jerusalem, that we may learn the law of the Lord. Well, it's, it's like the law of the Lord is going out from Zion in Psalm 119, and the nations are streaming to Zion in the songs of ascent in, in Psalms 120 through 134. And then um, there, there's a lot more that we could say about this. I am almost out of time. And uh, the, the, Psalm 135 is, is magnificent and wonderful. Uh, and then 136 uh, is this psalm that repeats this refrain, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's like everything the Lord has done in creation and redemption and the history of the world is all about his steadfast love. And then you have this final set in 138 through 145 of Davidic Psalms before the explosion of praise in Psalms 146 through 150. You read Psalms 146 through 150, and you almost have to ask yourself, what would cause all this praise? And the answer is nothing less than the salvation of the whole world, nothing less than the accomplishment of all God's purposes. The Psalter is meant to give us our story. It's meant to tell us what our lives are going to be about and how we're to respond to our lives. It's meant to make it so that we don't say something like, sex in the city ruined my life or whatever the show is now. That, that Hollywood, the influence of the culture, ruined my... We're supposed to be the people who, who have been so immersed in the Scriptures that we've got a different story. We've got a new story that revolutionizes and transforms us. It, it, it works... I'm, I'm out of time, but I'm going to tell you this story. Um, uh, this, this woman, uh, she became very famous... And, and all these journalists started looking into her history. They started looking into her past. And they found that when she was like 13 years old, her parents had put her in this private school where she was mercilessly bullied. They, they, it, was like a, it, was like a, it was a British school, and it was like a combination uh, boarding school and day school for some people. And the boarding school students were just vicious to the day school girls. It was all girls' school. And um, this woman had become so famous, and in a moment I'll tell you why, 
that, that they're talking to all these girls that she went to school with. And one of these girls said of this woman, they said of her, well, when we knew her, she was basically a non-entity. And this other girl talked about how she, at one point, she came around a corner and came upon a, a stairwell. And this, this girl is sitting on the stairs weeping because they have just crushed her. They have just so totally demoralized her. This little girl grew up to become Kate Middleton, the wife of the crown prince of England. And the, the guy that I heard tell this story, he's a British uh, evangelist, evangel, evangelist named um, Rico Tice. He said, imagine if you could have brought to Kate Middleton, 13 years old, weeping in the stairwell, a picture of her wedding day. A million people on the streets of London thronging Buckingham Palace as she stands on the balcony marrying the prince, the real live prince who really does love her and she really is being welcomed into his family. And you show her that photograph and you say, this is you. This is you. All these girls, they're going to look back on how they treated you and they're going to realize, I should have been a lot nicer to her. This is what the Psalms are telling us. The Psalms are telling us that our king's going to conquer. The Psalms are telling us that we are the bride of Christ. The Psalms are telling us that there's a kingdom coming, that everybody that opposes it is going to regret their opposition. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause the scriptures to build our identity, to shape our understanding of who we are, and to transform what we think we live for. Lord, make us live for you, for Christ, for his kingdom. And make us resilient against the attacks of the world and the persecution and the affliction and the difficulty that we will inevitably face. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.